Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Good morning, Sunridge. Hey, if you're new here, my name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here. So whether you're joining us here on our campus or online, thanks for stopping in in whatever way that you've taken a few moments uh, to invest in your spiritual life. We hope that what happens today uh, helps you take the next step in your relationship with God. Uh, of late, we've seen a lot of new faces, a lot of returning faces. So um, just turn around to the person near you and either say, I know you or I don't know you. <laughs> All right. Wow, what a friendly church you are. Or are you just going to keep talking so that I don't talk? Yeah, okay. All right. So I got some data and statistics for you today. I love this stuff. I'm kind of nerd out on it. Okay, let's talk about uh, divorce and marriage in America. Do you know that someone uh, gets a divorce every 13 seconds in America? So that means that in the time, about the time that it takes you to say wedding vows, um, nine divorces occur in that period. And uh, the average first marriage that ends in divorce goes about eight years, which is like the year after the seven-year itch, right? Um, if, you, if you look at divorce through the lens of, of nations, the U.S. ranks fourth in divorce, and Russia holds the number one spot. Uh, what about states? Who, what state do you think has the highest divorce rate? Nope, Nevada. Nevada has the highest divorce rate, and Iowa has the lowest. I know, something to think about. What if you compared it generationally? Millennials actually have one of the lowest rates of divorce, while boomers have the highest. Now, I know what you're thinking. I, I right away tried to figure out this data. It's because they haven't been married that long, but that's not what the data says. So the boomer generation is more likely to have an extramarital affair than younger generations as well. Interesting. What about if you looked at divorce through vocation, like what people do for a job? The professions with the highest divorce rate. Dancers, <laughs> bartenders, and massage therapists. Okay. Professions with the lowest divorce rate. Farmers podiatrists, <laughs> clergy, I made the podium, I'm on the podium, optometrists, and agricultural engineers. <laughs> if you're single and ready to mingle, I don't know, you should be, what about if you looked at divorce through the calendar? The top divorce month is January, which is right after spending time with family at Christmas, I don't know. What about if you look at it through politics, a political lens? Do you know that conservatives are the least likely divorce, 
compared to liberals at 37%. Hmm. But don't get too proud, conservatives. If you live in a red state, you are 27% more likely to get divorced than if you live in a blue state. <laughs> what about sexual ethic? How does that affect marriage? Um, the more sexual partners that you've had prior to marriage, the data shows, the more likely you are to get a divorce. And 60% of cohabitating couples will marry, but living together prior to marriage increases your chance of divorce by 40%. In a recent study, pornography addiction was cited as a contributing factor of 56% of divorces. What if we look at it through uh, the religious lens? Being religious in and of itself nominally uh, really doesn't make a difference in your divorce rate. However, being what researchers call, researchers call highly committed in faith makes a huge difference. That might be self-evident to you. What about reasons for divorce? The most commonly reported major contributors to divorce are lack of commitment, Infidelity and conflict and arguing, constant bickering. And in one study that was done in the UK, Facebook was cited as a contributing factor in one-third of divorces. What about the happiness factor in marriage? Psychologists say that, in general, married people are happier and healthier than those who are divorced or separated, and even slightly more happy than single people. But that doesn't mean that marriage will make you happy in and of itself, right? It's happy marriages that make you happy. And 64% of people um, report that they're happy in their marriage, which means that one-third of the people currently married are unhappy. And um, men report being slightly more happy in marriage than women. So all that... Whatever is going on out in the world and in our own lives, in our community, um, we're still in love with the idea of falling in love and having a family and getting married. And all of us, whether you're religious, not religious, Christian, not Christian, whatever you are, but you know, when we get married, we want a happy marriage that lasts. Now, we've been looking at this letter in the New Testament called 1 Peter because it's his first letter that found its way into Scripture. And we've been looking at, through, at it through the lens of this idea of being countercultural because if you're just here for this message, the, this letter is written in a context of, like, it's not a Christian culture. And, and Peter is writing to believers in Asia Minor and kind of telling them how to live in a time, live out your faith, in a community or a culture that, um, that doesn't engage or doesn't hold the same values as you do. And for a long time, many psychologists and Christian leaders um, have been saying that American culture is detrimentally affecting marriage in the family. And so how, I mean, with all the things that we have in our culture today, how do, how do I have a marriage in a culture that um, worships the body, uh, sexism is rampant, and it's really easy to divorce in common? I think it's fair to say 
that it is countercultural to have a lasting, faithful, and happy marriage. By the way, anytime in church we talk about marriage or divorce, it can create kind of two wide-range responses. Some of you are sitting there eager with your pencil and pen to take notes and say, I'm just leaning in all the way. I want the most from my marriage. And then uh, for others, this topic just causes you to implode. It's like you wish you didn't come to church right now because talking about this makes you feel guilty. It brings up a lot of regret. And I want you to know that that's not our intent today. That's not what I want to do. Divorce is common. And if we raised hands in here, a lot of you would, and we said, who's been divorced or remarried? Many of you would put up your hands. So I am not here to lay this heavy burden on you. There's a lot of reasons why people divorce. Oftentimes, they're valid and they're biblical. And the truth is, this, this thing that we want so much, we find to be really difficult, if not impossible, right? To have the kind of marriage that the Bible elevates or the teachings of Jesus or the letters to the first church, like, it's an incredibly high bar, and we want it. We want that, but it just seems out of reach all the time. And I know it's hard for you to believe about a pastor, and Mrs. Pastor, as I call her. Also, the Holy Spirit, I call Cindy. Um, <laughs> is that I fail regularly at this, these things. So I'm not standing before you and saying, you know, Brit, Hat, Brit and Cindy, you should just walk around with us and listen to our marriage, and you would be blown away about how amazing it is. I failed this week. You can check in with Cindy. She's in the nursery today. She can download the whole story to you if you really want to hear it. <laughs> and truth, you know, we just, we just completed 43 years. We just had our anniversary. And uh, thank you. Thank you. Y'all, I always get applause for that, you know. Um, and I'm well-deserving of it, I might add. But um, uh, It's like we know, and we say it constantly. Maybe you say this in your marriage. like, it's only God's grace that has gotten us this far. With, and we've invested in our marriage. We've worked hard at it. But like, we know that it's, God has intervened so many times in our relationship. So as always, what we try to do when we gather together is we're going to take an honest look at Scripture. But we're going to humbly rely on the Holy Spirit to point out things in us and to bring us through and to help us achieve the things that God is calling us to do. But it's going to be all God as we cooperate with him, right? So even though, you've, as you saw here, uh, Julie and Ben, uh, Peter addresses husbands and wives separately, I want you to start off by just saying that like, the exhortation to husbands and wives, to husbands and wives is the same. And here it is. Husbands and wives are to be self-giving and love to each other. Now this is a greater, this is a small part of a greater section where Peter's talking about human relationships in places where we constantly are figuring out what to do, whether to stand our ground or to bend. It's super interesting how these all tie together. He's talked about government 
and he's talked about our vocation or slaves and masters. And now he's talking about marriage. And in each instance, submission is a pivotal word. It's the same word. There are no different Greek words being used here and nuanced in some way. It is the same word, submission. Look at somebody near you right now and just say, submission is like my favorite. <laughs> yeah. Okay, you guys ready? First, we're going to talk to wives. Exhortations to wives. Number one, Peter begins by urging women to be submissive to their husbands. Verse 1, wives, in the same way, we're going to talk about that, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Now, again, before we jump in to what that says, I want to talk about what it doesn't say. Because I want to stop here and acknowledge that this passage and other ones from the New Testament have been misconceived and sometimes intentionally used to, to create something that the Bible does not create. It's been used to hold women down and to take advantage of them, not just generationally and in culture, but in, in homes. The problem is that we, we take a passage and we just pull it out and we read it through our American eyes in 2021, and that is not what is going on here. And so this passage is not subjugating women to a lesser role, nor creating a marriage that looks nothing like the biblical marriage that God has designed. Context, we say here all the time, is everything. Context is everything. So what was it like for a woman in the ancient world? We've talked about this uh, you know, a lot here. You, you should check out our series, Half the Church, where we talked about women's roles in the church and everything. It's like... There's, you have to take the scripture in context to who it's written to and what their situation is and where. And so Peter's really addressing two kinds of women in the church. Uh, women that came out of the Greco-Roman world, that culture, and then others that have a, a, more, a Jewish heritage. Now, Jewish women were respected and cared for according to the tradition of Judaism, but, uh, but they were treated as, as inferior. A Jewish woman's life wasn't terrible, but they lived under a patriarchy where they were not empowered. They were limited to uh, functions in the home, to their choice of relationships. They were very limited in education and uh, in pursuit of things that they wanted in life or business or anything. And, and they were uh, limited in their freedom. They couldn't travel like a man could. And then women, on the other hand, in the Greco-Roman world, kind of lived in two different worlds. If you lived in the region of Athens, Greece, you, your life as a woman was very much like um, uh, a woman that came out of the uh, Jewish tradition. But if you're in this region where Peter is writing to in Asia Minor, you are a lot more autonomous. Uh, women in Asia Minor owned businesses. They could vote. They held public office. They owned property. They, could, they had leverage in a divorce, and they had prominent roles in, in pagan religion, so they were religious leaders, and they were a lot more encouraged, a lot more likely to be encouraged to be educated. 
So they are a lot freer than their Jewish counterparts, but it was still a patriarchal society where men held all the power and were seeing, seeing that, that they kept that power. But even in that context, Peter says, wives submit hipotasso to your husbands. And he says in the same way. Did you catch that? So the theme that he's been talking about, in the same way that a citizen submits to governmental authority, and in the same way in vocation you submit to your boss, or in that same way you're to submit, which that nuances it, right? Because it doesn't mean that you bow down to those people and do everything they say. That's what we've been talking about. So then submission in marriage is to voluntarily yield your rights or your will to someone else's wishes or advice as an expression of love for that person. That's what biblical submission is looking like as we go through Peter's first letter. I've caught myself, and people around me are helping me with this. Do you ever use the, the language, I have to, and then somebody says to you, you mean you get to? somebody that you might think is also the Holy Spirit in your life. So, like, you get to. And that's, that's the idea here. This is the opposite of asserting ourselves and demanding that we get our way every time. But here's another thing about this submission. Submission is not a unique virtue impo imposed on wives. It's a Christian virtue. Submission is a Christian virtue. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 20 that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. And in Philippians, Paul writes that in humility, we're to, we're to value others above ourselves. So wives and husbands, when we talk about submission, to do this for one another is to be Christian. So if you're married right now and you happen to be sitting next to your spouse, like look at them and say, let's live like Christians. <laughs> oh, you guys were weak on that. You'd rather meet new people around you, which is like a whole... Okay, second thing Peter says to women or to wives is you're to exemplify inner beauty. You see that in verse 3, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, or adornment such as elaborate hairstyles and wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. You've heard the, you've heard the saying, uh, beautiful on the inside and the out. That's, that's what this is. It's, Peter's saying it's the inside that matters. It's not a prohibition to wear jewelry or makeup or take care of yourself and work out. It's setting up a contrast, though, that strangely is still pertinent, isn't it? Peter says that, that wives were here to emphasize a gentle and quiet spirit, which is to be not demanding or quarrelsome, and then he says, and that's what's, that's what's so worthy. That's what's uh, so valuable in God's sight. And that's in contrast, and this is the K 
countercultural part. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment. You've heard the saying that clothing makes the man. It also makes the woman. Because in the first century, you truly were what you wore. I mean, this, it wasn't like a thing that was like improper. It was the proper thing to dress a certain way is representative of your station of life in society. So, and it was it, like when it came to clothing, it was improper for you to dress out of class. Uh, you, you could use your hairstyle to signify your wealth. And of course, jewelry, you could adorn yourself with jewels, and then that would just further demonstrate your wealth. And some women would wear their wealth in their hair. They would, so like this is all tied together. Their hair would, be, would have jewels to show how rich they were. Um, way back in the day, when I was a high school pastor in Huntington Beach, um, we were part of this kind of like a supper club kind of thing, and it was, you know, wide ranges of ages, and like there was one couple, they were older than us, and, uh, but they were super wealthy. I don't know how we got in their group. They must have felt sorry for the high school pastor, and they actually, this couple was so kind to us. So she turned 50, and we went to her 50th birthday party, and they did that thing where like they secluded her right away, and then we had to guess things about her. Like, how well do you know her? And um, one of the questions was, how many diamonds is she wearing right now? And I texted Cindy this morning because, like, I was thinking, the number 80 sticks in my head. And Cindy said, uh, that sounds like a pastor story to me. <laughs> but literally, I was, I've been thinking 80, so I don't know how many it was. Cindy actually texted me and said, you know, if it had been four, it would have seemed like a lot to us at that time. She was loaded with diamonds, and not little ones, like big old diamonds, you know. I don't know how her ears held those things up. It just kind of <laughs> made her lean forward. There's nothing wrong with that. Like I said, they were like super generous people. But, like, that's not the thing that's important in the end. That's what Peter's saying. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment. And, you know, not much has changed in 20 centuries. Right? We still, we have an incredible obsession. And I don't know, this, you could prove me wrong on this. Send me your emails, fact check it. But it, se it seems like for women, it's, it's an extra big problem. That we, the culture has put so much pressure on you for how you look. And uh, researchers say that 91% of women are unhappy with their bodies. Um, and that stat remains, remains consistent uh, through age, race, and economic status. So there's like this vicious circle of false value that is also part of the culture. And one of the things that Peter's helping us do is push the culture back from what is biblical and faithful and honest truth. That pressure is incredibly detrimental. It leads to all kinds of psychological damage. Um, it re, uh, people resort uh, to all kinds of un, 
helpful practices like ridiculous dieting or eating disorders, over-exercising, and in many cases, subjecting ourselves to unhealthy habits or uh, procedures in order to look healthy, which is... And a lot of us just overspend to impress other people. It's unchristian. That's the thing. And it's when, when we like bend to this, we are conforming to an unchristian concept that comes from culture. So in your notes, this is you don't even have to write this down, it's just in there, that we need to reject influences that dictate that a woman's value is based on her physical appearance. Amen? Now men, husbands in particular, we have a great responsibility in seeing that our wives have a healthy perspective of what you value. And of course, what God values to help our wives see that they are of great value in God's sight because of their character. Next to wives, he says, admire the right people. Everyone has heroes. And again, that's a cultural thing. We can, we can attach ourselves to images of people. But here, Peter refers again to something out of their Jewish tradition. Uh, in verse 5, he says, For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves, that is, from the inside out. And they submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called, her him, called him her Lord. Now, Sarah would have been, for any, any Jewish woman at this time, would have been like the model wife. And if they had converted to Judaism, still, they would, they would hold the Old Testament scriptures in that same revered way. And so Peter is saying, you know, model yourselves after Sarah. And he says that she obeyed Abraham, which is not obey, like you say to your dog. Obey means to listen attentively. To, to give the respect to what your husband, in this case, is saying. It's to take an, an interest in their needs and desires. And if you think about Sarah, she modeled this so well. And Abraham was not perfect. I mean, think about if you were Sarah and you had to live her life. He, he moved her all around constantly to foreign lands. Life gets good. We got to move. Why? God said. How do you argue with that? And he starts over and over again, and he makes all these mistakes. And yet Sarah listened attentively. And then Peter points out, she called him her Lord, which is a reference to when um, Sarah and Abraham were told they were going to have a child in their old age. It's in Genesis 18.12. I'm going to put it up there. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, Am I worn? after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Now, Lord here can mean husband, but also note that Sarah was laughing when she called Abraham Lord. <laughs> Just want to point that out. And I think that if Cindy ever called me Lord, there would be laughter included as well. I'll be part of it. 
So I'm wondering maybe if uh, the writer, the author of Genesis, probably Moses, right? Um, maybe he misheard or misrepresented this because what she really said was, I'm going to have a baby, oh Lord. That's what I don't know. Anyway. The point is that Sarah is a great model of how to love an imperfect husband, which every wife here has. And you will have kinship with Sarah if you do that. That's what he's saying to these first century believers. So find a Sarah, a modern day Sarah, and pick her brain. And like, be mentored by her. Uh, for wives with unbelieving husbands, by the way, this is the best way to see him through to conversion. And this goes back to verse 1. He says, if any of them do not believe the word, they, be, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. So again, context here is helpful. In the patriarchy of the first century, if the husband became a Christian, the whole family became Christian. That's the way it worked. But if the wife became a Christian, it was not an automatic. So this is central to what Peter is saying about marriage and then culture in general. That your life will speak louder than words to your unbelieving husband. And there's a common theme here that's running through what Peter says, and it's this, that conversion is the result of gentle persuasion. People are not converted by jamming something down their throat and yelling at them. Who gets converted like that? We're, we're all gently persuaded. We, we're on a continuum that moves us through faith. And as we've been saying, that I think that this is the message of 1 Peter 2.12, which is the hinge verse, in this letter, uh, your life can change people's minds about God. That's the bottom line, whether it's, in, whether it's how we're responding to government, whether it's how I'm responding in my workplace, and how I'm doing marriage affects people around me. I wonder how many of you husbands that are here today would say, I was converted, and in, in, in I was greatly influenced in my conversion by my wife, by my wife's faith. Look around. Look around. It's amazing, isn't it? How many of you would say that your wife is a major spiritual influence on you today? By the way, guys, this is your chance to raise your hand. <laughs> you, yeah, raise two hands. Thank you, Cal. I'm just trying to help a brother out here. So obviously, Scripture is concerned about marriage as a mutual relationship. It's not a one-way relationship, right? Which brings us to the most radical thing Peter says, maybe in the entire letter. To be compliant with Rome, that's no big news. To tell a slave in the first century or a household servant that you should do what your master says, that's not earth-shaking. Wives, that you should serve your husbands, it's a patriarchal culture. Of course we have to do that. But what we read in verse 7 is unheard of in the first century. And this is mind-blowing to them, even though we've just kind of like accepted it. So I want us to see it through this lens. Husbands, are you ready? 
Buckle up. Exhortations to husbands. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. I kind of just point out that it's a mistake to think that because a woman gets six verses and the man only one, that the man has less responsibilities. Maybe it's because women are capable of so much more. Or maybe it's like, okay, guys, you got one thing. I think you can handle this. I don't know. Here's your simple plan. Peter's instructions for husbands are radical and countercultural. In the first century, the wife had the hardest role. But a Christian husband had the greatest responsibility. And it required a dramatic change in how he viewed the world and how he viewed his wife and his home and like, kind of like the values and ethics that they engaged in in that household. So basically, verses 1 through 6 are saying keep the social norms for a different reason. But verse 7 requires radical transformation. Do you notice that this verse to the husbands also starts with in the same way? In the same way as your wife, now in the same way as your, now you, husbands, in the same way. So this is not another category of responsibilities. This is a common thread, and here's a way to put it. This is what submission looks like on you, husbands. It puts them on level ground, and he is framing what servanthood, submission looks like for a husband in the first century. And the language is actually elevating wives to inequality. And the words that should be jumping off the page is to be considerate and respect because that's unnecessary for a lesser. And even though culture has changed a lot in the last 2,000 years, let's take the intent and heart of what Peter says here, instructions to husbands through the lens of that first century and how it would have just knocked them back on their heels. What does it mean for a husband to love his wife in a radical and transformative way? Number one, Peter says, be a student of your wife. Be considerate. Literally, it means be knowing of your wife. Know her. And that is a radical thought to a first century man because it's saying what she thinks matters. Uh, For a number of years, I worked with a guy in the fire department. Did I mention to you guys lately that I used to be a fireman? I've been slipping on that, so... Um, and th- there was a guy that, like, he, w- he was a single guy, typical, you know, single fireman, big truck, all the toys, um, didn't have a mustache, but, um, and he would come in and talk about his escapades of how all these women that he conquers. He was, he was a conqueror out there, and yet he was, like, by then in his late 30s, and I don't know how many relationships he had. When he worked for me, I saw the longest relationship lasted a little over a year. And, like, one day he was just going on and on about it, and he's like, you know, I just know women. Yeah, yeah, I get women, da, 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 da. And I said, dude, you don't know squat about women. 
He's like, you're just an old married dude. I said, dude, all you've done is repeat kindergarten over and over and over again. I'm in the graduate program. I'm with, I'm with this woman like over 30 years, and I'm still learning. And after 43 years, I can tell you honestly, I'm still scratching the surface on understanding Cindy. What makes her happy? What gives her security? What is she most afraid of? And honestly, sometimes her answers, I can't even wrap my head around it because I'm not afraid of that. That's not my main goal. It's like, and I, but what God says is know her, understand her. And I imagine that anybody that's married here has had conflict over this this difference that husbands and wives have. Now, I'm going to let you in on a secret, husbands. Okay. One way to know her is to ask. <laughs> Write that down. Ask. Ask her questions. And then another way is like, after you asked, listen. I found that to be really helpful. And like moving on, you know, to the next class. And then after that, work on it. Put it into practice. Next, Peter says, to treat your wife with the greatest esteem. The greatest esteem. You know, you can tell a lot about how a person feels about you by the way they talk to you. And it was, it was a few years ago, I walked into Starbucks, there's this young guy, I might have told this story, it's so good, I'll repeat it, and like, look at me, I'm like, I'm an old guy, and I walk up and he goes, hey, sport, what do you have? Sport. <laughs> and in my mind, I'm thinking of all these responses, but I might have had a church shirt on, <laughs> so I couldn't say them, and I just said, I'm good, how about you, youngster? It was so weird. And, and in the past, you know, we've done these couples studies here at church, and we sit in a circle and, you know, like, talk about marriage. And, and even over time in our home groups, life groups, like, you can watch couples interact with each other. And you see whether there's respect or not, don't you? You see it. In the first century... Treating your wife with this kind of respect is a radical concept. It's to totally go, and go against the flow. Hey, why are you doing that? You don't have to do that. It's completely countercultural because respect is something that we do for those that we value. And in that culture, your wife was someone that virtually you owned, and so you weren't called on to value her. And you know, Maybe, maybe, I'm only speculating. I'm in like in squishy territory here, but maybe like Peter is talking to husbands this way because like rather than saying submit, we value respect so much, don't we? Guys do. It's like uh, Emerson, Emerson Egrich in his book Love and Respect talks about how they did a study and they asked guys, you know, it's your place of work. Would you rather be loved or respected? And it's like guys are really high on their respect. We don't care if you love us. Just respect me in my job. Um, 
we, we say things like that. I, I have so much respect for that guy. Or we say, I have no respect for that person. And it, the way Peter's writing this, he's saying to husbands, this is how you show submission to your wife in the same way. You respect her. In the first century, respect is something that you give only to those who are in authority over you. Remember, the word, the word submit means to arrange yourself under, to place yourself under. Uh, in other places, Scripture says respect or honor your parents. Same word. So, and this is the super interesting part, why you should do this. And it's another way that um, we have misinterpreted Scripture. Treat her with respect as the weaker partner. And this is the next thing. Use your power to elevate your wife. That's what he's saying. The weaker partner here is not intellectual, spiritual, emotional. It's physical weakness. Your wife is physically weaker than you. And in the world, physical strength has evolved and spread beyond being able to win an arm wrestling contest. This is a physiological difference that has sociological implications. Because in the ancient world, physical strength translated into power. And power was to be held over. And men were physically stronger, so they had all the power. And what does the world do with power? Jesus said, you know that those who have power over you Hold it over you. They exercise, they, they, they oppress you with that power and they use it for their own gain. So this is another radical statement in this one statement by Peter in this one verse. Treat your wives with respect and honor because you have power. Husbands and wives, as long as we're living together and as long as we're human beings, we're always going to struggle with power. There's always going to be tension. In, in some marriages, more than others, there's always going to be a tension. And it's, it's about managing power and submission because we're just human beings. And Peter's saying this is an opportunity for husbands to demonstrate the servanthood ethic of Jesus. Next, because your wife is your equal before God. Verse 8. She's an heir with you of the gracious gift of life. Remember, we've talked about this. In the first century, women inherited nothing. And so, again, Peter is using language that comes from the Old Testament or the history of Judaism about what was so valuable to a man or a family or a people was to inherit Remember, even like when they came into the promised land, God gave these tribes areas. They said, this is your inheritance. And that land was like, this is my place. This is my wealth. This is what, this is, what is important to me. This is your, your inheritance. But also in that culture, as if a, which we saw in Ruth, when a husband dies, the wealth didn't go to the wife. It went to a son. And so Peter's bringing this language in, but like in a whole new way. 
He's saying she is an heir. She inherits an heir as well. The honor due to wives is tied to our equal standing before God. That sounds ridiculous now, doesn't it? But in the first century, it was all new. And there's a footnote here in verse 7 that says, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. The hinder means to interrupt, and scholars have you know, debated this since it was written, you know, does, is there like a block if I'm fighting with my wife? Do my prayers not get through to God? I don't think that that is it. I think it's more likely that hindered is, uh, it represents a more practical uh, interpretation here. A husband who treats his wife in the wrong manner is not likely to be submitted to God in the first place. And uh, he will likely have any, he likely will have no inclination to pray. Remember, Jesus said that you can, the greatest commandment is what? To love God and to love your neighbor. And you can't separate them. And so Peter's drawing those concepts in and saying, you know, if you, you can't think that you're good with God when the person, the most important person in your life, you're just in major conflict with. Your prayers are hindered because you're probably not even going to want to pray. In other words, your relationship with your, with your wife is an indicator of your relationship with God. And that's what Jesus taught too, right? Love your neighbor. How can you say that you love God and hate your neighbor? John wrote. We like to separate those things. I'm going to ask the band to come up, and as they do, um, I want to wrap up our thought by going back to the, one of the first things that I said. And it was this, I'm going to put it up on the screen, that husbands and wives are to be self-giving and love to each other. And so if we have the kind of marriage that we want to have and the kind of marriage I think that Peter is bringing out, truly, we won't have arguments about who's in charge. Isn't that true? If we're both serving each other in the, in the way that, I mean, it's unique in every family how that expresses itself. But like if we're both submitting to the Lordship of Christ, we're not fighting about who's in charge. And that a marriage like that, pe people won't describe it in terms of submission. Wow, she's a really submissive wife. Um, what they'll call it is a loving relationship. They'll call it, wow, that's, that's, a, that's an amazing marriage. And the couple will experience the joy of that kind of relationship. Now, some of you, not, I know you're like, you want me to be real practical. Say, so let's get, new, let's get real practical. She wants a new kitchen, and you want a Harley. <laughs> Who submits? I have no idea. Because <laughs> I kind of want a Harley. No. Like every other relational context, they work it out in submission to one another. And a marriage like that is one of the most powerful witnesses we have in our day and time. And that's why Peter said in chapter 2, verse 12, that we're to live good lives that reflect who God is. And when we do that, when we live in this way, it sets people back and it changes their mind about God. Why? Because it exemplifies Jesus. 
In Philippians 2, Paul wrote this. He did not, that is, Jesus did not consider equality with God to be something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So why did Jesus do that? He did it because he wanted to demonstrate the love of God to humanity. He wanted you to know that whoever you are, wherever you came from, he loves you. He wanted you to know that God also loves that person next to you. And he wanted you to know that God loves your neighbor. Whatever sign they put in their front yard the last few months, however they treat you, he wanted us to know that he loves us. And that demonstration of his love was giving up what he had for the sake of you and me. I can't think of a better way to celebrate that than communion because that is the picture, right? As Jesus gathered with the 12 in the upper room and he passed the bread and the wine, what did he say? He broke the bread and he said, this, this bread is my body broken for you. And he passed the cup and he said, this wine is the new covenant of my blood which is shed for you. What he said is, I lay down my life for you. So as we take communion this morning, if you, if you don't have one of these, you can raise your hand. Our ushers are kind of wandering around right now. So there's a hand up here. Anybody else, don't be shy. We want to do this all together. right here. Hands all over the building. And as we take communion this morning, I want to, I want, we're just going to do it in one fell swoop, but um, I want us to be reminded that what Jesus did for us, we're going to stop and think about that. And as we leave this building today, married or not, happy, conflicted. You know, we're going out to do the same in our world. Whether our world's in our home, in our neighborhood, at work, we're reflecting God's grace in the world because our lives can change people's mind about God. Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.